Hi, this is Chad Dull. Welcome to my Poverty Informed Podcast. I'm actually as fired up as I've been in a while because I've spent the weekend live streaming the Real College Conference from Houston. Uh, I was able to attend Real College last year uh, in Philadelphia for the first time and to say it was life-changing would not be an exaggeration. Um, I got to meet so many people and uh, it's just such an authentic experience um, and it's just invigorating to be around people who have a shared mission with you and are willing to uh, acknowledge the things that you believe are important really are. So I'm always grateful to Dr. Sarah Goldegrab for for leading that and for her team for putting it together. Uh, I wasn't able to go this year because in my job transition, by the time I got to my new job, uh, the conference was sold out, which was great news for the conference. A bit of a bummer for me, but I'll certainly have a team uh, in Camden, New Jersey next year. Um, But when I'm all fired up by all the stuff I've watched online, I thought it would also be honest to talk today about um, the resistance you meet when you try to do things that might be a little outside the norm. And I think... um, For an academic leader to talk about basic needs as a primary issue can be a little outside the norm. Uh, But I'm more and more convinced that uh, if we can address basic needs, create a sense of belonging, and deliver excellent teaching, that we can really change outcomes for people. Um, But when you do that work, if it means anything, there will be resistance. And so today I want to talk a little bit about something I wrote last year called Poverty-Informed Practice in Higher Education, Overcoming Resistance. In looking back at these podcasts and essays, um, trying to document my evolution towards poverty-informed practice and the reasons behind that evolution, I realize I've been uh, a little rosy about the experience. And while the work has been affirming and even life-changing on some levels, it has certainly not been easy. So in the interest of full disclosure, today I'd like to share where I've found resistance, how I've tried to overcome it, and why I push my team to keep going. There are days when I feel like we are part of a movement in changing the world. And there are days where it seems getting people to do literally the least they can do is almost impossible. From my point of view, the reasons are simple and complex all at once. The first place I noticed resistance is in processes and systems and the loyalty that develops to them. It actually defies logic in many ways, but as my friend Mandy said uh, when we were working together at Western, people will work very hard to do new things the old way. It's a pretty brilliant summary, really. Now, back when I wrote about trying to change language we used on signs, textbooks, test booklets, and in classrooms in my building, Remember, we had the word no everywhere and all cap signs telling people to it was staff only or do not write in things. Um, what I didn't tell you about when we started to change that was that very small change met with agonizing resistance. The people who had created the stickers came to me and said, oh, we're going to have to relabel everything. And that was hundreds of booklets. And, and could we please wait until the next term or, or just start from now on? That was a really hard one for me to hold my ground on, but it mattered. It seemed like literally the least we could do. But honestly, uh, initially I caved in and said we could just do new ones the new way. And after some conversation with uh, trusted colleagues, I had to change my mind overnight. 
The whole conflict seems silly in hindsight, but changing stickers and signs took months. Just to get started, actually. I would argue the people fighting me on it weren't even sure what their objection was. They were just loyal to the current system. And somehow they decided, because the system predated most of them, that it was correct. There are lots of other examples, but when you try to change a paradigm, loyalty to processes and systems will be an issue. My best advice is have the courage of your convictions and stay the course. Now, in an organization of any size, bureaucracy is going to combat you too. When I started writing about poverty-informed practice, it generated quite a bit of enthusiasm on my campus. And suddenly, there were signs disappearing if they looked unfriendly, as you know the aforementioned all-caps, staff-only signs on doors that were locked anyway. Now the game had started to move outside my sphere of influence, and pretty soon our physical plant weighed in. They were great people in the physical plant, but they weren't thrilled with random sign changes. I had to make a choice at that point. I could go to war over signs, or look for a way to bring the physical plant into the conversation without losing my momentum on campus. I'm pretty good at compromise, which actually hasn't always served me well, but I think it did in this case, and I was able to meet with the physical plant director and get my area declared an experimental sign zone. I have to give him credit on that one. That was creative. We were headed towards a remodel, and he said we could look at sign options that gave us our poverty-informed ethos and let us prepare for the best possible remodel. It was an elegant solution that let us change the bureaucratic structure slowly, but also let my enthusiastic team move with the urgency they felt. The only downside was some other areas of the college had to put their old signs back up. But I think that'll get fixed eventually. The lesson in this particular case is a little different than the first one. Um, you have to pick the hills you're willing to die on. Sometimes, just sometimes, a compromise can earn you an ally, and a battle would have made you an unnecessary enemy. Pick your battles wisely. The other piece of resistance I see is less concrete, but it is everywhere. There's a constant evaluation of who deserves help, and it's pervasive. I've written about it or podcasted about it a number of times, but it's worth revisiting. Dr. Donna Beagle is so eloquent at challenging all of us to find our underlying bias when she asks us to imagine what someone has to do to be worthy of our help. The form of resistance that comes from this notion of deserving is much more insidious and more subtle. It sounds like things when people question the sustainability of the bowl, which was our snacks in the lobby, or they look at it and say things like, couldn't a business sponsor that? This resistance shows up when people tell me our mantra, every barrier that can be removed should be removed, feels a little too much like welfare. This resistance shows up in seemingly well-intended conversations about why would you do this just for these students? Shouldn't this be for everyone? That last one is particularly challenging because they are right in some sense. I believe poverty-informed practice is a form of universal design and solving barriers for real college students solves things for students in general. But my history and a sense of urgency says students in the crisis of poverty can't wait for the world to find universal solutions. For once, the students I'm advocating for get to lead the way, not wait for the rest of the world to be ready to help them. Can you see the subtle judgment within that other approach? So while it is better to fix systems than to fix people, we aren't asking the people to wait, at least within the best of our ability. 
Someday, maybe the world will realize our students with the most barriers teach us the most. But until then, we'll continue to plow the road for them the best we can. So my advice to anyone working through this issue is twofold. First, give up on the notion of universal acceptance. This work requires upsetting people, and if you can't get comfortable with that, it's going to be hard. In all honesty, it's my biggest challenge. If I'm honest, I like to be liked. Secondly, openly embrace what you are doing. Belief seems to attract belief, and passion seems to attract passion. For everyone who questioned my snack purchases or lack of screening for assistance, there were two people telling me they loved their job more than ever and feel like they understood our purpose. I'll leave you with this. If you want to take on systems, processes, bureaucracy, and implicit bias, you better have reasons that keep you going. I admire the students we serve, and personal connections with their stories keep me going. I often think of my friend Emmy at my prior college. She shared a lot of her story with me and really became, uh, among other things, my friend. But when I would see her at school every day and realize she came back to college after being homeless for a number of years and homeless on and off as a student, and realizing she had barriers many of us would crumble under, I just thought she embodied hope, and I thought we owed her every effort to do whatever we can to shrink and remove barriers for her. My friend Emmy is also a poet, and I want to leave you uh, with her poem, I Am. I'm not sure I'll give, do it justice, but here it is. We can't stop trying to help. Emmy deserves our best effort. Here's Emmy's poem, I Am. I am a beautiful survivor, but sometimes I think I am a failure. I wonder where this road will take me. I see happiness in my heart. I want a life that isn't this. I am a beautiful survivor, but sometimes I pretend to be what people think I am. I feel defeated each way I go. I touch the streets I came from. I worry that no one understands me. I cry for the soul that I can't have. I am a beautiful survivor and I understand that nothing can stop me. I say what flows through the air. I dream the day I can have my soul. I try to be happy, but fail. I am a beautiful survivor.